Why, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Peer Pressure Podcast. I am Diane, sometimes known as Diane Kamikaze, and I am your host. The reason why I do this podcast is because I like to say I am a champion of heavy music. I've always found my favorite songs since I was a young kid had riffs, hooks, were either metal, hardcore, hard rock, or punk, or something fairly aggressive in attitude and sound. And I am all about appreciating the people that keep that world going, whether they're musicians, webmasters, other podcasters, record label and festival owners. It's important to me to recognize what these people do in that realm of music. So I am here to bring them to you in a different context, more than a Wikipedia entry or a press release, a little more personal and a lot more fun. I'm a rocker for life, and I hope these episodes do make a difference. Send me feedback at diane at wfmu.org. And my Facebook page is Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life. Like my page there, and I will keep everybody updated on podcast episodes in that space. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned. Welcome, welcome. Today we talk to Drew Carolyn, photographer and author of a book that just came out, Matinee, All Ages on the Bowery, 1983 to 1985. It is a beautiful book put out by Radio Rahim Records. Yes, you notice I don't have my talk over music and there's bells in the background. So listen to this episode because Drew has quite the resume when it comes to working with and uh, photographers that he learned from. He worked with Richard Abaddon, or we get to hear him tell us about those days and the making of this book. Stay tuned. So thank you for coming on the show. Your book is beautiful. It is called Matinee, All Ages on the Bowery. Can you tell us about the process of it and how it came about? And then I'll ask you questions out of what you've told me. It really started... I don't know, late 81, early 82, I was stumbling around the East Village at 2.30 in the morning on a Tuesday night, which I tend to do at that period of my life, and I happened to uh, see a bunch of kind of skinhead kids throwing the Frisbee outside of Tompkins Square Park, and I thought, oh my God, these kids are amazing looking, and what are they doing out at 2.30 on a Tuesday night, school night, <laughs> you know, and um, I just thought, I really would love to photograph them. They were great looking. Um, and my approach to photography at that time, I and mean, I was doing street stuff and portraits, but it was all really uh, daylight, you know. It was 2.30 in the morning. So I thought about it and thought about it and kind of put it back in my mind for a while. What happened was I wound up getting a job working for Richard Avenon, the photographer, and part of the process of working with him was going out west to uh, make portraits for a book called In the American West. As a kid from Manhattan, I'd never really been anywhere. And so the joke was I'd never been further west than 4th Street. So I jumped to work with him, and it was an incredible opportunity. So uh, after our first trip, which was about three or four weeks out, to traveling the blue highways of America, uh, I came back to Manhattan, and I was you know, happy to be back home. And uh, I drove by CBGB's one Saturday afternoon, and there were you know, tons of kids 
uh, going to a hardcore matinee, which I really wasn't hip to. And I thought, wow, these are the kids that uh, that I want to photograph. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do it the way Avedon did it out west. He set up a white piece of paper on the side of a shady building. And, you know, people came out of the woodwork for, you know, rodeos and, uh, you know, rattlesnake roundups. And that's where he picked and uh, chose his subjects. So what I did was I just intercepted kids on the way to the matinees and began this uh, portrait process. And I didn't know if it was going to work. I just I wanted to do it. I wanted to try it. You know, after the first day, and I looked at the contact sheets, and I had some really great pictures. In fact, the cover of the book was on the first day. I didn't really say a whole lot to the kids. You know, I said, hey, I'm making a book. Love to photograph you. Most of them, you know, didn't give me the time of day. The first kid I approached, he just asked me if I was a cop, and I replied, uh, no. <laughs> and he said, okay. So that was kind of how it all started. And that book is a, is amazing, and I see a lot of this darkness, the way he pulled personalities out. Now, can you talk about how he worked and what you maybe picked up from him or a style that you saw would work for you? Yeah, I mean, the whole available light. I mean, I had worked for, I a freelance assisted a bunch of photographers, one of whom was Bruce Weber, who shot mostly outside natural light, and I liked that style, and I also liked the spontaneity and doing street photography, which I've been doing since the 70s. I loved, you know, Cartier-Bresson and I love Robert Frank and, and people like that. So I liked the whole uh, decisive moment process. With Avedon, he was using an 8x10 Deardorff camera, which is like, you know, you, you put the uh, sheet over your head and you focus it and then you stand beside the camera. Kind of an arduous process. I mean, you know, you need someone to load the back of the film and they need to stand still. In that respect, I wasn't one that could stand still very much. So <laughs> I worked with a two and a quarter Roloflex, which I handheld. So that part of the process was different. But I think with Avedon, and something that I was very interested in as well, was the vulnerability of people. You know, like one time he said to me, you know, Thoreau said, lives are quiet desperations. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty heavy statement. But, you know, in a way, we all have our moments of insecurity, vulnerability. You know, we have our highs, we have our lows. And I think when I first encountered these kids, they were wild and free, and I related to them in the fact that they were wild, <laughs> like I was wild at their age, but I was also, I had a lot of vulnerabilities. I had, you know, strict parents, you know, I was the first kid out on a Saturday morning at 6.37 a.m., sitting on a bench wondering where everybody is, and then, you know, then kids would start coming out around 9 or 10 o'clock, and then, you know, I was also the first kid that had to be home, you know, my mother said, you have to be home by 8 o'clock, you know. So I like the fact that these kids were just wild. So, I mean, uh, in that respect, I found that very interesting. But at the same time, I knew that, you know, a lot of these kids, this was their time to shine. They were at the matinee, they were having a great time. And maybe, you know, uh, next thing you know, they're going home, you know, to their parents, an abusive father, or they're living in a squat. These are things that, you know, that I, that I found as I continued to photograph the kids. And also, you know, the, the elements around there and the Bowery. I also knew CBGBs because I used to go there in the 70s. So there was a lot of elements at that time, um, you know, downtrodden people, disenfranchised, Bowery bums, punk rockers. Uh, the Amato Opera was like two doors down, which was, uh, I'd been there for like 40 years, which was like a kind of a local uh, opera house. So there's a lot of interesting elements. 
And so that was the 80s. Were you developing all your own film? What was that, the, the post process like? Yeah, I always had uh, dark rooms from, uh, you know, from when I was a teenager. I always had something. And um, I think at that time, uh, I was living down in the East Village, and I was working for Avanon. I had a really nice little space in this basement apartment, so I had deep tanks and an enlarger. I was also, you know, I was doing freelance gigs. You know, to make any money, you had to process your own film. Otherwise, you wouldn't make anything. Were you just doing contact sheets to start with? Had you Did you even really think about making them larger, looking at book format? What was that like for you? As soon as I processed the film, I'd immediately make a contact sheet, and then I would look at them and I'd say, "Oh, that's a good one." And I'd mark it, and um, you know, and then I'd, I'd start making you know, eight by ten prints just to look at. And um, in my office, I had a wall where I'd start putting the pictures together. Now I was working on the in the American West book with Avanon, not only shooting, but Marvin Israel and I think Yolanda Cuomo at that time were both art directing that book. So I was kind of part of that process, watching Avanon make choices and then watching, you know, Marvin put the pictures together and see how the dynamics work. Because a lot of times when you have a book, you open it up, you have maybe two completely different pictures on each page. And in some way, shape or form, they have to complement each other or create some kind of attention. So I started doing that uh, right away. And those are things that I definitely picked up from Avedon in that respect. Oh, that sounds like it was really perfect timing. That was exactly what you needed to learn then, even though you didn't use it until much later. So we've got a few decades in between. What, (laughs) what What happened to the life of the book and the life of the project, so to speak? when I was making these pictures, my intention was always to do some kind of a book. And I just don't know at the time if anyone was really ready to see these pictures. There wasn't enough time. And in a way, I mean, in my mind, I was thinking more of the classic route, like when Curtis went and photographed the Indians in the West and, you know, Avenon did his his pictures. I wanted something classic. So I don't know if people were ready for that philosophical approach or whatever, but I did use the picture to show to people, and it gave me entry into, you know, different things. I was shooting fashion kind of stuff, and then I had worked with some designers who really liked those pictures, and they wanted to do stuff kind of based on that. So there was, you know, things that that helped me from that book, but it slowly got shelved. You know, it was always in my mind, I wanted to do it, I wanted to do it, but, you know, time goes on. And then, you know, around 2006, I got an email out of the blue from a kid named Andy. And he said, hey, do you remember me? Uh, You photographed me at CBGB's. And I was like, yeah, man, of course I do. Because I I kept notes. I mean, I had releases on the kids, but they really didn't work because they were mostly under 18. But I had names of, of most of the kids, you know. So I said, yeah, of course I remember you. And then we started talking and he said, hey, you know, I'm in touch with, you know, I photographed him and his sister. And there were all these people. And I thought, wow, you know what? Maybe now's the time. And MySpace had just come out. And I thought, (laughs) I'm going to put together a MySpace page with some of these pictures. And within two weeks, I mean, I had hundreds of people. All of a sudden, there were all these stories. And I got really excited. You know, Mm. and I thought, wow. 
maybe now's the time. So then I was kind of looking at it as like a, a history book, you know what I mean? Uh, this was a snapshot of a time. This is kind of a documentation of the youth at that time that were congregating in a certain place. So then I just started to assemble stuff and reached out to people, and I kept quotes and emails, and there was some interest from uh, a clothing company slash publisher uh, that said they wanted to do the book, and you know, and they were kind of hip and cool. And at the time, I was like, "Oh God, I'll you know, I'll do it with anyone. I I do it with you know, generation dog food. I don't care. You know, yeah. I just wanted to get it out of my system." Mm-hmm. And we had some great, great talks, and then it just stopped. Um, so I just kind of, you know, I, I got over that, and then um, eventually, someone I think it was Radio Raheem Records had contacted me about using a picture. We started talking, and, um, you know, I said, wow, you guys are really, like, you're historians. You're, like, you know, you're the whole hardcore thing. You really, you know, take care of it and, and you know, really believe in it and want to preserve the integrity of, you know, that whole uh, musical movement. And I said, you know, I've got a history book. And they were like, well, we'd really like to do it. So when we started talking, they were like, hey, you know, we want to do it. We think it's great. You know, we don't want to interfere with your creative process, but we want to help you get it done. And that's when I was like, okay, this is great because these are, you know, young, smart guys um, that really believe in this as part of, you know, that whole scene. And um, and that's when it, you know, that's when it took off. And I mean, look, it was a two and a half, maybe even a three year process because it all takes time and, and you know, a little money here and a little money there. But um, they really got behind me and they were great. And then, you know, there was this whole talk about, listen, I don't want to just do a book and I don't want to just have a show with beautiful pictures in a frame. I want to do like an installation and maybe we could do a record. And then we started talking about, um, you know, adding a seven inch record to the book and that got me really excited so that was like when i was like i'm in and i'm going to spend as much time and energy as i have to to really make this work so it, well and it's a beautiful product and i have not seen the entire the the box version i guess there's two versions um and one one does have the seven inch and one also comes with some signed photos and a poster right Right. And most people haven't seen the box yet. It's coming any mm-hmm. day. Thank mm-hmm. you for being patient. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, with, listen, with the seven inch too, I, um, you know, I, I liked a lot of the bands. Um, and, uh, you know, as the years went on, I became more and more of a fan. But I wanted to, you know, include bands that maybe hadn't gotten their due or just, you know, I just thought were cool. I mean, look, I love Agnostic Front. I love the Cro-Mags, Murphy's Law, all those bands. I want to kind of go with, you know, uh, bands that maybe not everyone in the world has heard of or, you know, whatever. So that's kind of where we went with that. And um, I think we were really successful um, in that respect, just getting the recordings. In fact, um, Blood which is an all-female hardcore band. Um, they're in, in there, and Danielle's in there, and I love her. Um, I wanted to get recordings, and, and when I talked to Danielle, and she talked to you know the girls in the band, she said, there really wasn't anything that existed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, leave it to Chris at Radio Rahim, he just scoured the earth to find something, and he finally found um, a guy named Brian Quinn. Thank you, Brian had a, a VHS tape 
of blood at A7 from 83. And Chris got a hold of it and remastered it. I don't know what he did. He did his magic. Mm-hmm. And look, it's only a 40-second track, but it's great. Mm-hmm. And when I first heard the VHS, I said, oh, God, you know, you can hardly hear it. And now when you hear it, it's like, it's really great. So mm-hmm. I was really happy to kind of uh, have that as part of uh, the record, just because um, I think people are kind of hip to that band, but hadn't really heard anything. So it was, it was just kind of interesting. Right. Know? And then all the other bands, Seth Before Dishonor, The Mob, Hellbent, uh, Antidote. I mean, they're all, they're all great bands. So I was very happy to be able to have a record along with the book. Yeah, I think it's a really perfect coupling, and it sounds like you and the people at Radio Rahim Records, and if you can go to the Radio Rahim Records site, records.com site, you, there is a, a page up for the book. And now you're going to be in town on the 18th. Yes, I'll be, uh, we're doing something at Generation Records down on Thompson Street, um, and the guys there, I mean, they're, they're great, too. They're just really, you know, really into it, and uh, the mob will be performing. I'm so excited about that. In fact, when we were talking about who can we get to play, you know, because all the other bands are, you know, no longer exist, and we talked about the mob, and then Chris, or I think uh, Fritz Warwick, the other um, owner of Radio Rahim, had known uh, Ralph, Ralph G mm-hmm. from the mob and had reached out to him and said, Hey, we're doing this thing. Blah, blah, blah. And I think Ralph was, was kind of into it, but I think he was sold once he saw the book. Plus he's in it. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was really excited to know that we could get, you know, one of the original bands to play And they're, you know, they're terrific. What do you say? You say authored a photography book or how is that? Author. Always sounds great. My mother would love that if she heard I was being referred to as an author. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's probably rolling in a grave right now. Author, but, uh, yeah, author of a photography book. I mean, I, I've written something in there which kind of gives you my you know, little my backstory is how I came to the project and you know where I grew up and mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So you know, and a special nod to Stytown, Town, which is where I came from, and that's where my formative years were developed. Very so, nice. Yeah. And so what was your musical taste? It sounded as if you were more attracted to what looked like the personalities and the energy of the people. What brought you in? And, uh, and, and now, obviously, you, you like the music. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, you know, when I first started photographing, when I was done, you know, I'd roll up the paper. And the first few times I went out, I was by myself. So I had a couple of the, you know, the Bowery bums help me. Uh, roll up the paper and put it up. But then I'd go inside and, um, you know, Hilly was always there. And, you know, I'd walk in with a nine-foot seamless in a cardboard box, and Hilly would say, yeah, yeah, just lean it up against the wall. They said, but don't forget to take it with you. Uh, and then I'd go in and I'd watch the bands. And, I, I mean, the first time, and I don't remember... I don't remember who the first bands were, but it was just like, you know, the kids were having chicken fights or jumping all over the place. There was many, as many people on the stage as there were in the crowd. Everybody was singing, you know, the hooks of the song, and I thought, this is, this is great. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen yeah. in my life. To be honest with you, it was just, you know, so much better than anything else was out there. And this whole, like, you know, camaraderie thing with these kids was just, it was insane. So I just became an instant, you know, fan. And then I, you know, would buy the, you know, I'd buy the singles or the shirt or, you know, whatever, because, I mean, I, you know, I, I had a job, so right. um, I was happy to help support that scene. <laughs> but, I mean, at the time, 
I mean, and I grew up, I grew up, you know, listening to the Stones and the Doors and all that stuff. And then I got into um, the Stooges and MC5 and, you know, a little bit of Black Sabbath and, and Grand Funk Railroad and all that stuff when I was a kid. So, you know, this is like the closest thing to that, you know, that kind of music because it was just so uh, physical. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, no, I became an instant fan. You know, some of the bands were terrible, but it didn't matter. It was just like the energy <laughs> of of the crowd and, and that scene that made it great, regardless. Did you ever have any issues on the street? Like, were there any, any times that you were going to set up and you couldn't or anything? I mean, that neighborhood was not a wonderful neighborhood at the time. You know, I mean, I was very comfortable there. Um, and, you know, I kind of dressed like I just got back from, you know, Vietnam. So, um, but, I, yeah, there were a couple of times there were some younger, and I hate to use the word bums, there were younger kind of disenfranchised young men that were all, you know, whacked out. And um, they used to fight over who was going to help me because they always knew that I was going to give somebody a few bucks. Huh. And, uh, you know, so I'd have to kind of you know, take one guy aside and say, dude, calm down. I'll get you a couple of bucks. Just calm down. Um, but other than that, I mean, I never really had any um, any problem. I mean, there is that famous Robert Frank story. It's becoming famous, the Robert Frank story, who, by the way, it's his birthday today. Oh. Robert Frank, he was a great Swiss-German uh, photographer who did the amazing seminal book, The Americans, in the late 50s, uh, which was basically a... It was a black-and-white photo essay on America, and at the time it was very controversial just because um, it wasn't the prettiest picture of, of America. Right. Know, yeah, very um, gritty. Uh-huh. But he lived, he lived right across the street, which I didn't know at the time, but he... Um, oh, and again, from, I mean, from you where know, you were shooting? Story, it's in the book, basically what happens is it was February of 84, it was freezing, the guys on the corner had a garbage can, you know, fire going, and they were warming each other up, and there was this kind of disheveled-looking guy uh, with a big video pack. At that time, they were huge, and he was videotaping them. And then, um, you know, we were shooting, and kids were coming and going, and it was crazy, and I had uh, my buddy Tom was helping me, and he was, you know, you know, he thought he was Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry, but this guy came up and just started filming over my shoulder while we were uh, making pictures, and I just turned to Tom and, you know, you know threw a couple of F-bombs and get this guy out of here. So he just kind of, you know, grabbed him by the collar and his video back and walked him across the street and told him if he came across the street again, there was going to be some damage done. Oh. And uh, and I didn't know this till later, but, um, you know, when we were done, this gentleman came back and I was crouching down, putting my stuff away. And I, he was over my, standing over me and he said something like, oh, what are you doing? Some kind of August Sander thing? And... August Sand was one of the greatest German portrait photographers of the late 19th, early 20th century. And when I heard this guy say that, I thought, uh-oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. Right. And just as I looked up, it hit me who he was, and he said, I'm Robert Frank, and nobody tells me where to go. I've been living on this block for 30 years. And I was like, oh, my God, Mr. Frank, I am so, I'm so sorry. And he just walked away. <laughs> I thought, oh, boy, oh, boy. No oh boy, I'm going to get in trouble. And I was also worried about my job because I was, I was working for Avedon, and if, you know, word got back that you know I or my assistant had threatened him with physical violence, I'd get fired. <laughs> so I just I, I didn't mention that for a long, long time. But uh, 
Hopefully, Robert, happy birthday. No harm done. I, I did try to apologize. Yeah, he's 93 today. And he's amazing. And there's a great yes. documentary that Laura Israel uh, directed um, that's out right now. And, uh, he, you know, he's just incredible. But I was in the moment. Your art was threatened. You know. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see that footage, actually. <laughs> right. right. Well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dare ask him. What was the feeling like when you first started asking these kids if you could photograph them? Tony was really Tony was really the first guy, and he just kind of you know he looked at me because I, I went across the street and you know again I had my gear and I was alone, so I had to carry my case with me. You know the paper if they tore it down, okay, no big deal. But you know I had my Rolleiflex and my light meter and all that stuff. But um, but he just asked me if I was a cop, and I replied no, mm-hmm. and um, and then he went you know and then that kind of started and then. You know, uh, Big Rob, who, I, by the way, I want to send a shout-out to. I know I think he was in the hospital. He was having some uh, complications with his health. Get get well, Big Rob. You have a lot of fans. Um, so, you know, it was Big Rob, and then it was Jimmy Yu from uh, Death Before Dishonor and Mark Ryan. Uh, they came over, and uh, and they were, you know, I mean, they, they, were, they created some distance with me, but I, I worked fast, and I just, I, I just, kind of photographed them and, and you know saw what happened it's funny mike judge just said recently in some uh uh on instagram he said oh i remember when you guys went over there he said i wasn't going over there because I, I was sure that guy was a cop and uh, <laughs> then he said ah, i guess i was wrong <laughs> that's funny but um yeah i mean once they started coming over i never really kind of went back and asked people it just kind of happened organically oh, okay. you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and and to be honest with you at the time I wasn't saying, oh, I want uh, rabies because he's in this band, or I want this guy. You know, um, it was just, I, I was interested in the faces. I mean, listen, there were people that probably went there one time and one time only, you know. Right. Um, and then, you know, but I mean, years later, people say, oh, my God, that, that's Mark Ryan. And he was in, you know, Super Touch and, uh, you know, and, and all this other stuff. So all the stories started to evolve from there. You know, for the longest time, they were just kind of two-dimensional icons on my wall i mean yes many of them had names but uh, other than that i didn't really know who they were what they were about uh, you know some people i did i mean uh i did you know uh photograph uh, a bunch of people over a two-year period but it really wasn't i didn't get deep into it there really wasn't any time for that but um you know interestingly enough um we've been able to develop relationships over the years because of social media yeah, tell us about what you're doing on your Instagram. And your your Instagram is Matinee Photo Book, is that right? Yes, Matinee mm-hmm. Photo Book. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I just, um, uh, on that page, I just wanted to, uh, you know, celebrate the book. And also, I mean, because I was limited, I had to commit to a certain amount of pages, like 144 pages and then lay the book out, which made it really difficult because, you know, I probably photographed, I don't know, maybe like 150 kids. And there's a lot of really, really good stuff that I just couldn't include, you know. Um, So with the Instagram, I wanted to be able to share outtakes. And um, we're talking about doing just like a seven-inch, almost like like a zine um, of outtakes that um, we're hoping to have available. Uh, I want to include those... um, you know, those uh, outtakes, uh, you know, of which there's a lot. So, mm. um, you know, uh, so, yeah, so that's that's what I have on Instagram. And I, you know, I'll pull something and say, oh, that's kind of cool and, and put it up there, you know. Um, you know, the sad thing is, is that I did start to develop relationships with people 
after the MySpace thing, and you know, some of them are gone now, and it's I'm I'm really saddened. Uh, to know that somebody like Ira, who was the doorman, who was everybody loved Ira. It's just you know, just a, a real mensch. Oh um, yeah. I, yeah, you know, is is gone, and he won't be able to see it. So I, I you know, feel bad about that. Right. Yeah. Well, and um, what I actually, and I probably should have been a little bit more specific, on your Instagram, you're photographing people that are in the oh. book with the book. Right. Which right, that's right. You, really... you have like a runaway train. you got to stop. <laughs> stop! Um, you know, it's funny because I was thinking when I when I, I got some advanced copies and I sent them out to a couple of press people and, you know, didn't really get any response. And I thought, you know, I should probably send them out to the kids because, you know, I've, the least I could do is send them a book. Um, and what I did was I, I sent some kids a book. So I said, do me a favor, photograph you have someone photograph you holding the book now so we can see what you look like, you know, then and now. And, uh, you know, one of the first ones I did was um, uh, The Wrecking Machine, and uh, he was like one of the stage bouncers there, and he's just one of the great kids. Uh, of course, he was in a, you know, a police uniform. Well, that was just, you know, <laughs> that just blew up. That just blew up, you know. And, yes. uh And so I just I sent them out to... Um, you know, everyone who I knew, uh, who I could contact, and uh, just had them, you know, said, hey, you know, take a picture wherever you're comfortable, whether it's your, in your house or in your neighborhood or at your job. And um, and it's interesting. And it's, you know, um, now there's, I mean, I don't know if I can talk about this, but there's going to be, I wrote an article, and it's going to be on the website for, um, can I talk about that? Yes, of course. About uh, NPR Music. Um, is going to be doing a piece uh, next week, actually, kind of then and now. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of people, Mark Ryan, Danielle. Um, I, I'm just uh, losing track, but there's a bunch of people who I photographed, and each of them kind of gives you a little uh, backstory as to where they were at that time and, and where they are now and some of the music that they're listening to now. So, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting, and um, they, I guess they do too because, they're going to publish it. Uh, and, I, and I think that there, there's something, you're really seeing personality there. It's different than what is out, like these books about sort of like the history of hardcore. Because a lot of those books are like, I'm going to interview, you know, guys A, B, C, and D to put together my chapter about this. And I'm going to take their quotes and I'll make it seem like this. Um, and you're... You are, of course, the the artist, but you're really seeing the faces in real time, and you can see you can see. And I love the um, there's a lot of real playfulness in in the book, and it was such a tough guy scene. Um, it's really the juxtapositioning is really wonderful. Well, you know, I'm glad you say that, but I mean it's interesting because. From what I observed, and certainly now, um, it's a real community. Yes. And if you yes. look at, I mean, like this weekend, I think it is, Ian McFarlane has a film coming out called The Godfathers of Hardcore. And he's an incredible filmmaker. And it's all, you know, all about, you know, Vinny and, and uh, Roger Agnostic Front. And it, it's a, the, the trail is incredible. Um, and, you know, all these people, Drew Stone, all these people, they're all coming out. 
um, uh, supporting each other. Um, you know, there's a, like I said, there's a bunch of books. You know, Roger Moret's book and Harley and uh, Tony. Rett. I mean, there's a real, real community. Everyone really supports each other. And I, I think even back then, um, you know, if you talk to any of the girls from that scene, you know, they were tough. They were definitely tough, and um, and the guys respected them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also they were very, from my observation, they were, they were very um, open to, you know, bands coming from out of town and welcoming, you know what I mean? Because, look, a lot of these kids were outcasts, the music was different, and uh, and they loved the fact that people would come there. Well, listen, when I went there, I mean, I was like at least 10 years older than anybody, except maybe for Vinny Stigma. <laughs> but, um, yes. you know, they were very cool. Everybody was really cool. So, you know, I mean, yes, there's that front, and there, and there is that, tough stuff but i mean you know was was lower east side back then was not the prettiest place in the world you know what i mean no, so, no, no. Um, but yeah you know that's uh, that's the way it is and that's the way the way i i saw it you know there was a lot of compassion and uh and there was craziness and all that but you know that's life well and it's nice to see that revealed because i guess sort of what i meant was the the view of that scene was that it was you know all tough and nasty and you know I made my way there many, 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 many weekends and uh, and could belong, which is right. really what I think anybody was looking for. Did you were were any of your subjects um, prone to just hanging out with you while you were there for a long time or did most of them really just like come in, get their picture taken and, and leave? Well, I mean, it was kind of funny, I think, for a while. And, you know, I wasn't there like every weekend. I mean, the course of like probably 22 months, you know, especially in the summers, I wasn't there because I was traveling, working on that book. But I was usually there in the dead of winter, you know, and stuff like that. And I'm sure the kids are like, oh, yeah, there's that guy again with the, with the paper. But, you know, I started to develop relationships like with Gwen and uh, Amy and, uh, you know, uh, uh, uh uh, the wrecking machine and people like that because you know what sometimes they want to just get away from the mob across the street and just you know come on you know come across the street to where i was and just kind of hang out so there was um you know there was there was there was that mm-hmm. i mean there were people um there was one kid i i photographed a kid named josh i photographed him literally for a 60 of a second and uh i met him again in 2009 for the first time and uh re-photographed him um, but I mean, I never saw him again, but he was part of that scene, you know, nice, you know, if I had been in Milwaukee or Phoenix or somewhere else, I don't know if it would have been the same and I'm not dissing those towns, but New York is a melting pot and the hardcore scene in New York was black, white, Puerto Rican, Italian, Polish, male, female, gay, straight, confused. It was just, you know. The average age, say maybe sixteen, was a real melting pot of adolescence. Just so active and so amazing. I mean, I I kind of grew up in that scene, and it means it really means a lot to see images from there that are not. There's no opinion in your photographs. I'm not sure if that if that makes sense. You're really just shooting the people as the people with no, uh, I don't want to say frills, like you're not couching, you're not, you're not setting up anything. And the white background is so perfect. I think I wanted to just, I mean, be objective for one thing. 
and also, I mean, I was curious about, you know, the youth of that era and that scene. But, um, you know, not to really judge, because really, I mean, after, you know, a brief time there, I realized that there's all kinds of kids. You know, you have kids from the tri-state area, you have kids runaways, you have kids from, you know, great homes, you have kids from messed up homes. Um, but they all got together. So, um, no, I mean, I didn't really have, you know, an opinion and I didn't want to have, you know, I don't want to direct people and say, look, this is what this, you know, this is what this is. I just wanted it to, you know, happen. Yeah, well, and, it's, uh, it's less of a definition of the scene than a pictorial essay, maybe. And, and one of my favorite pictures is there's a, there's a picture where I think there's a girl who's got a bottle in a bag, and then another girl who may or may not be sniffing glue. But they're, they're like, laughing. And it's just, <laughs> right? It's just kind of like, woo! Like, do you remember when you were shooting that those particular, it looks like there's, like, a series of a uh, couple people with the, the paper bags rolled up and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean... Vaguely remember. I mean, it certainly wasn't something. Oh, hey, you're sniffing glue. Come on, stand over here. Right. They were just kind of hanging around. Yes. And you know, and um, you know, and it, it happened very fast. I just thought that um, it was important to include that because it was, in some way, shape, or form, a part of adolescence. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and that's not to say that there was a lot of drugs or drinking going on. I mean, really, in the club, all there was was pitchers of water. You know, what kids did outside, you know, was their own business, but that did transpire in front of me. Um, and to be honest with you, all those pictures, I mean, that probably was about two minutes. Right. Um, but it kind of tells the story, which I thought was interesting, this bonding, but at the same time, it's like the abuse. Oh, and they let you photograph them. You know, so there's something to be said for your style, too, whether you made people comfortable or there's something really endearing about those. It's a, and it's a nice look back. And that's one of the examples, I think, that it, had you done the book in the 80s, published this exact same book in the 80s, um, I think it probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have been received in, in the same way. And I'm guessing it's well-received. So... So far it is. Yes. I mean, and you're right about that. I mean, I have the original layout from like 1986 of the choices of pictures that I wanted in the book. And I would say 80% 80, 80 of them are still the same because there are certain photographs for me that say something to me. Now that's, you know, me projecting my own opinion on an image but uh that hasn't changed but at the same time you needed time and history to really look at these and say wow look at that this is way before benetton or any of these other companies were kind of exploiting youth and and the whole fashion thing and this is very in a way, anti-fashion, although now it's like, you know, people pay a lot of money for ripped-up jeans and stuff like that. Yes. So um, it just, it needed time. And you're right. I don't think if it had come out in 1986 or 7, it would have been a curious little thing, whereas now it's, it's, it's a little bit more because of the time uh, that's been allotted. 
the uni- the United Colors of Hardcore. <laughs> there you go. That's really cute, actually. I kind of <laughs> I, I kind of like that. Just throw a sweater over it, and there you go. <laughs> exactly. Um, was there a period of time, because there had been so much time, where you really didn't look at the photos at all, or was it always sort of like this thing in the back, and and as you moved or whatever, like everything is together? Because you you don't live in New York anymore, right? No, and I've I've moved. <laughs> Those pictures have survived a lot. But, um, you know, when it came to my files, you know, this project and, you know, stuff that I've been shooting since, the mid seventies, I've always tried to keep it somewhat together. Um, when I started working <clears throat> for Avidon, I mean, you know, you learned how to file and, you know, number stuff and, and really, um, you know, keep that together. So in that respect, that really helped me keep this project together. Yes. Learning filing and organizational methods is definitely a, uh, yeah. But, I mean, to answer your question, I mean, you know, they were always there. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go in and look at the matinee pictures together today. But, um, you know, but they were always there. And I think, you know, even subconsciously, you know, I thought at some point I would love to do, um, you know, do a book. But, you know, listen, when you're, when you're growing up and you're, you're in a career and you're working, you're not really looking back. You're looking forward and how are you going to make this, you know, how are you going to live and survive and, and all that. And I think when you get to a certain age, you're, okay, now it's time to look back on the mess I've made. Right. It's time to organize it and maybe share it, see if anyone's interested in this. No, I'm glad that you were that organized. It's really, it's a, it's a great book. My guest is Drew Carolyn. He is the author of a beautiful photography book called Matinee, All Ages on the Bowery. So, Drew, what's the... Um, the best way for people to look at um, the specifics about the book or what you're doing? What's your... Um... What's my handle? Um, I yeah. mean, you can go to uh, matineephotos.com. You can go to radiorahimrecords.com for the book. There's a bunch of stuff up there, drewcarolyn.com, C-A-R-O-L-A-N. And real quick, I just wanted to give a shout-out to a couple of people. Um Al Q and Jeff Smith from Tornado Creative in L.A. Uh, helped design the book, you know, and they were, you know, really great and very patient with me. And I have to, you know, really uh, give them some love, especially to Al, because he's, uh, he's from Brooklyn originally. And we got along like a house on fire. Um, and also Leo Sachs, who helped uh, edit the book. He's an incredible writer and, and a great friend. And he introduced me to Ben Cesario from The New York Times, who wrote a really sweet essay in the book. Um, and uh, they're great guys, and uh, you know I couldn't have done it without them. So I wanted to say you know thanks to them, and also of course to my wife Diane, my daughter Siobhan, and my son Jack for putting up with me forever. So thank you. <laughs> and also I would I would encourage people if they're on uh, Instagram to look at Madney Photo Book. There's something about the the people who are in the book holding up the book now. That's really lovely. But um, Drew, thank you so much for visiting with us. You've really turned something historical into like a real human view that's not hearsay or just stories and for having the persistence to put out the book now it's really (laughs) hey thank you so much i really appreciate you having me and so much we have a, a question from a listener can you talk about what kind of work you do today well i do all kinds of stuff i do something in photography every day 
I'm working on a couple of uh, projects that I, I'm not allowed uh, at liberty to discuss, but they are music and photo related, so I do that all the time. I have two other jobs. I work, um, I read scripts, I do product placement for uh, the Reach Agency in Los Angeles, which is great. I get to read scripts, great stuff, and uh, do product placement for them. And I also work for Design Communications Limited, which is an incredible company uh, based out of Boston, and they do um, architectural specialties and fabrication. Um, they're you know, a signage company that was started by two punk rock guys back in the 80s, and today is a very successful company, and I do some project development with them, so I work with you know, architects, designers, and general contractors, and that's really um, a lot of fun and, um, and interesting. So I am very busy. Nice. Well, I'm glad that you could uh, fit this in and that you got the got the book out. And I hope that you think it's a great sort of finale. I think it's beautiful. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Drew Carolyn. And that concludes another podcast episode. Thanks for tuning in. More on the way. I am Diane Kamikaze. Check my Twitter and Instagram. Handle is one word, Diane Kamikaze, and Kamikaze ends with an E. On Facebook, you can find me as Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life. My regular WFMU program right now airs Thursdays, noon to 3 p.m. For an expanded version with lots of music, wisecracks, ticket giveaways, music news, and other fun stuff, check me there. The full link to my index of WFMU programs, including podcasts and regular radio shows, is wfmu.org slash playlists slash DK. That's a capital D and a capital K. I'm going to be working on encore presentations, and I've got years of old interviews and podcasts. So if there is something that you'd like to see reposted... Whether you missed it or whether you just loved it and want to hear it again, drop me a line at diane at wfmu.org and request that. Be sure to subscribe to the show if you like it. Please rate it and review it. And there you go, WFMU, peer pressure. Thank you. See you next time.